welcome to Reckoning Higher Ed, a podcast dedicated to investigating and understanding the issues facing higher ed today. I am Jeff Giovanni, and I am the host. Today, we have a very interesting guest. Her name is Natalie Lenhart, and she works for Isaacson Miller, who is a, an executive search firm for specifically uh, in her specialty is for the academic sector. Before I go into a little of her background, I just want to explain why I thought this was a good idea. It's, as I understand, it's a, perhaps a little uh, non-traditional, but if you think about the type of experience and exposure a recruiter for higher education gets, it's a very broad one. For example, uh, most faculty and administrators have a long-standing relationship with very few universities in terms of their work experience or as it relates to the work experience. So you might have two or three or four institutions uh, at which you can draw your experience. However, and having gone through a variety of uh, interviews and such on both sides, uh, leading searches that had engaged search firms as well as being part of searches for which a search firm had been hired, I've gotten a lot of exposure to the search process, especially with regards to the search firms. And I've been consistently impressed with the degree of depth that they've been able to obtain in order to accurately portray the position, the requirements, the ideal candidate, and even the culture of the university or college. So it is, it is with that in mind that um, when I became acquainted with Natalie, I thought this would be an excellent opportunity to draw on her vast experience in a variety of universities as she has uh, perhaps maybe shorter term, but does these deep dives with a vast array of universities and colleges nationally, rather than having longstanding relationships. So she could bring a unique perspective. So she's been doing this since, uh, at least working with Isaacson Miller since 2007, starting as a team administrator, moving up in 2012 to a senior associate. And then a couple of years ago in 2019, became a partner and a managing associate. So she's been at this a long time and has had a lot of success in this and has um, oversees a variety of five to 12 searches at a given time. And, and with, in that regard, um, has a broad, again, purview of a variety of universities and colleges. So with that, I introduce Natalie Lenhart. Okay, Natalie, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff. Looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. And and in part of my intro, I was talking about how I, I really struck me the how someone like you is is really unique, and we can dig into this later, and the perspective you might be able to give on higher ed because you know, people like me who whose career is in higher ed, we tend to have a lot of access to very few institutions where you have access and get really deep, really fast to a lot of yeah. institutions through your searches, right? That's right. Yeah, the work we do requires us to become experts of an institution or a a certain type of organization. For a little while, we build up a lot of interest and expertise about the place or their research interests or their advocacy in the field. And then uh, we hopefully find the perfect match for them and leave them to it. Uh, we check in often, obviously, but the work we do is um, very deep on an organization for some time, but not uh, for the long term. And so we get to know a lot of different places. Sure. So in that regard, let's start like right from the beginning. What is a recruiter in general? <laughs> and, and in your world, how is the type of recruiting you do in, in your organization different than what my dad used to refer to as a headhunter? You know, uh, this is private. I would say private sector, but what I mean by that is non-academic because uh, there are private universities. I, I I'm just live in the public sphere. So I tend to think it universities as public when there's a whole smattering, of course. So how, how does a recruitment differ for, for the spaces you work in versus how what most people in the, in the non-academic world might think of that? Sure. Well, I think one of the important pieces is a differentiator for my firm. Isaacson Miller is 
mission-driven. We were founded 40 years ago, uh, and our work spans the whole civic sector. So we have a passion for the mission of the institutions we work for. So we're recruiters on behalf of um, institutions of higher education, nonprofits, civil rights um, organizations, education improvement organizations, pre-K through 12. And we are passionate about the missions of these organizations as they um, are to us the foundations of a successful society. And so uh, the passion that we bring to the work in that way, I think, is a little different than the headhunter that you might be picturing or that other folks have worked with. Um, we also bring a, an incredible commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. It was really fundamental to the creation of our firm. It's part of why I do the work is to bring exceptional leaders to um, specifically higher education. Two-thirds of my work is in our higher ed practice, probably more than two-thirds. And two-thirds of our firm's work every year is in higher ed. And so as we think about recruiting, it's matching talented and innovative leaders to public, private, community colleges, liberal arts institutions, Ivy League institutions, regional comprehensives, right? We believe all of these institutions are incredibly important for the, the future of our country, frankly. And then we do some international work, and, and we believe um, that strong leadership is really important, um, to again, to be a foundation for a, a mission that we're passionate about. Wow. And there's a lot in there. So, <laughs> so let's unpack that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the types of, so in a university setting, so we'll focus on that because mm -hmm. you mentioned that yeah. you do um, the whole, I think the word was civic um, mm -hmm. world of which about two thirds of your work is in higher ed. Uh, so focusing on the higher ed, the types of positions within the university or colleges that you tend to serve or, or try to fill. Yeah. I do work and have done work in higher education at almost all functional and academic leadership levels. So that means student affairs to chief academic officers to presidents. I've done quite a few dean searches, quite a few um, chair searches, more in the academic medicine world, but it's certainly the leadership position. So it is different, I think, than a faculty member recruiting uh, or a faculty search committee recruiting faculty members for their department. These are often search committees that include staff, faculty, board members, and students. Um, and they are across, I've, I work across private, public um, institutions and like I said, full uh, you know, uh, PhD granting universities and some small liberal arts colleges. Okay. And do you have a rough idea of, of what that breakdown would be? How many of those are, would be a large public university, smaller publics, mm -hmm. maybe smaller privates um, or in or community colleges? Yeah, I... I don't have it off the top of my head for the firm. My work um, really is probably half and half. Uh, so I work quite a bit with um, uh, public universities, and then the, another large chunk of my work is in liberal arts, private liberal arts institutions. Okay. And you, and if I read correctly, you're overseeing somewhere in the range of five to 12 searches simultaneously. Yes, and each search is at a different stage. And so sometimes a search is just starting and we only want, you know, a, a couple that are just starting and then others uh, take different paths to finishing. And so we are, I am very careful to be sure that the number of things I'm committed to is quite reasonable in, in terms of how many uh, committees and clients I'm serving directly. Okay, but that does seem to validate the notion that you indeed have access to a lot of universities <laughs> and colleges, right? I mean, it's you you see yes. a lot of, of that ground, right? Yes, we do. And our firm has worked in 49 of the 50 states of this um, country. And again, we have done some international work. So we have a real sense and real feel of what different types of institutions are doing. And we spend a lot of time together. Uh, so I can speak from my personal experiences, but as a firm, there are 160 plus of us and we spend a lot of time together talking about what we're seeing in the field. Fantastic. Wow. So 
And and of course, there's there's always a, a process, right? And and I've actually participated as a as a potential employee, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as it worked with search firms and the academic setting, and um, and I've also led um, at least one search where we had a search firm, and it was very different than a search without a search firm. Um, but the process, you know, as a potential as a candidate for a position, you know, you see it after a certain point in the process, because it was very clear, there's a lot of work that was done by the time I learned about a position, because there's all this, you know, very carefully packaged information about the job, the environment, et cetera. And, and then of course, there's a specific process through actually matriculating through or sifting through the candidates and then working with the search committee all the way up to a hire. So what, walk me through that. What is that process. I think just, I think it would help listeners to really understand what, what the, what recruiters do in the academic setting to bring folks in and, and how do they demonstrate what this position is and, and, and to, you know, how do they really get a real view of it? Because, you know, every position has sort of a, a range of attributes. Some are really exciting and some might be a little scary because, you know, some universities going through tough times and you, you want to disclose that so people know what they're getting into. And I, I found recruiters to be very forthright and, um, and balanced in how they, they have, have portrayed those to me in my experience again. Um, so just walk through the process. What is that? How does that work uh, from your point of view as the, as the recruiting firm? Yeah, we spend a lot of time at the outset of a search with the decision maker with the search committee and with the stakeholders who will report to or be a part of this person's next uh, couple of years, right? This successful hire. And we think about it as what are the challenges and opportunities that this person will be asked to spend time working on. We craft position profiles. And then when you hire a search firm, um, when you hire me, uh, the, the work is to recruit and network and knock on doors, right? This is not a passive process. We're not waiting for applications. It's important to note that as the search firm, as your search consultant, I don't make very many decisions. Uh, search committees are the ones who do that. But we can, uh, again, knock on doors. We can recruit people. And by knowing the ins and outs of the institution, of the department or college, we can really present you fairly in the marketplace and help candidates understand, is this a place where we're going to be, you know, is it an excellent place where we're just building on excellent? Is it a place where you know, all the faculty will be retiring in three to five years, and I'm going to have to recruit a whole new class. Is it a um, is it an institution with a small endowment but a lot of upside? And so, really being, I think you said this, Jeff, really being honest about the ways in which this person can walk into a place and be influential and move it forward. That's the best way for me to recruit and to approach a, a recruitment and uh, a possible match between client and candidate. Cool. And that, that is an interesting distinction um, because in the academic world, you have a committee and generally, and I know my wife really uh, just missed, is mystified by the academic world all the time mm -hmm. and she works in HR. So it's, it's like, mm -hmm. she's just like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get what you guys do. It's just so different. And mm -hmm. so speaking to, to that, knowing that most people listening would be just not so uh, well-versed in how higher ed works, was there's a search committee and this committee is uh, all members of the institution. They mm -hmm. uh, review the applicants and make decisions and, and really facilitate the process internally. Um, so there's that kind of a relationship between them and then the recruiting firm. And to and I'm really driving to your point, Natalie, about uh, that you don't make decisions, but really expose the position and uh, to the world, if you will, you know, knocking on doors, as you say, to get people in. Uh, but interestingly, the search committee generally don't make the ultimate decision or really many decisions either. Mm -hmm. They go through, they might... Uh, 
pull people out who just aren't qualified, they don't meet the minimum mm -hmm. requirements. But then they recommend to that hiring person, the person is the, the decision maker, what they think and, and or at least as it often goes, just tell, tells the story, you know, here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so, here's who's we, th you know, might be strong, you know, and then work through the process uh, internally of all the meetings because it could be a day, two days, et cetera. And then at the very end, they're still often not told. And when I was chair of one search committee, it was a, for a dean. Uh, mm. We were, I was, I was instructed as the search committee chair not to rank order, just present the findings that we collected from people's responses from things. So it's interesting how there's all these different levels where you have, um, in, in our, this case here, you have this, your search firm, you have the search committee, you have the hiring, we'll call them the hiring manager, but it's typically, you know, the provost, if it's mm -hmm. a dean or someone like that. And then of course you have all the constituents because you have all these major, you know, all these meetings, you have a presentation and, and everyone gets to give feedback. And so all this stuff has, comes in and funneled in. Um, any, any thoughts on how, what your, how your role and then the search committee's role and how you guys interact? We are constantly trying to learn from the client at large, right? So the decision makers uh, view of what they need in this person. And then the search committee's view of what is going to work best in the culture and in the context of this institution, what the real opportunities are, where the stumbling blocks might be. And so the search committee can be in, can be and is usually very influential in the direction the networking takes the ways in which the pool is winnowed uh, and the ways in which, again, I think you've said this, you know, most are forwarding unranked lists, but with strengths and concerns. Uh, and each institution, as you know, is different. Public institutions have different policies and procedures than private institutions do. But search committees play an incredible role in, in really shaping the path of the search. And we work very closely with, again, it's the decision maker at the end of the day, but the search committee chair throughout and the whole search committee as, um, as our recruiting starts really large and the number of active candidates narrows as the search moves forward. And it's generally in direct response to search committee members' preferences. Ah, gotcha. And, and if I could, uh, at the risk of oversimplifying, hmm. perhaps a way to characterize the uh, one major difference between a university-level hire versus a, uh, again, I want to say private sector, but really non-academic hmm. world hire is that, that universities and colleges tend to be extremely deliberative, meaning this, it's mm -hmm. a lot of human effort between uh, this committee who turns to every single person. So every person on the committee reviews the files. Then you have, uh, you know, meetings with sometimes hundreds of people when you're talking about presentations for, you know, large, uh, especially mm -hmm. higher administrative hires. Uh, would you agree with that notion? That's absolutely right. And there's a high level in my searches of transparency between what our team has been doing and what the search committee sees. So, you know, lists of can potential candidates, lists of applicants, lists of people who've said no thank you. Um, you know, there's a lot of transparency and the search committee is really wading through a lot of paperwork and a lot of potential individuals. And uh, higher ed institutions are quite a bit more, and there's a range of this as well, but quite a bit more focused on shared governance, um, trying to get consensus of some sort, trying to listen to all the stakeholder voices. And I would go back and say, this is part of why we start with in-depth conversations with everyone as we're writing the position profile. So that at the end of the search, no one's saying, well, you missed X, Y, and Z, and none of these candidates are any good because you didn't include this or you didn't test against that. And yeah, I imagine that would be a supremely mm. frustrating outcome of a search. For everyone. Yeah, right. Because yeah. again, so much effort, so much, it's very manual, very deliberative uh, with so many eyes on it and really considering uh, and such. So, so now that 
I, we have a, a fairly decent idea, or at least a, a, a notion of what that looks like in terms of process uh, and knowing that you've seen these universe colleges and universities, many, many, many of them having facilitated a number of searches. Let's talk about what you've observed over the years and how these hires have changed or maybe the, just some trends. So for example, um, maybe through, think about uh, a couple types of positions. So you mentioned, you know, high, high leadership, uh, presidents, provosts, uh, deans, and, and how the hiring practices have changed. What maybe the priorities for those positions, how have those changed in, in say the last decade or so? I think many of the higher level searches, the roles have evolved quite a bit. So as you think about a president's work, it's more external than ever before. Deans are doing more fundraising than they maybe previously did. And it's not just development work. There's community engagement. There's alumni um, engagement. There's what we, I think, used to call town gown. And, and certainly that's still part of the conversation. But it's not just building relationships in the community so that students can have uh, community service opportunities, right? But it's really tying the success of towns and cities to universities. And a lot of that work is falling with presidents. Um, there is an incredible awareness of, especially in the Midwest, of the demographic shifts we are all mm. hearing about and talking about the uh, number of college-age students. How do we think about uh, non-traditional-age students? How do we think about uh, micro-credentialing, stackables? There are a lot of ways in which the student population is going to look different. And I think we all learned during COVID that there is a little bit uh, more room to move more quickly than we ever kind of thought before. We can do a little more online. I don't think that the traditional um, education system is going anywhere, uh, but I I do think we've all learned that there are there's a little more flexibility than we originally thought. And that, that's interesting. You bring up uh, micro-credentialing and stacking of, of certificates or degree, whatever. I think usually stacking certificates into a degree. Mm -hmm. um, how I, I'm actually I'm surprised at some level that that came into your conversations with the universities. How how does that work? Like when they're talking to you about what they're looking for in a leader and how do, how do those topics come up? A lot of our clients or my clients will talk about the ways in which they, we can't keep doing the same things we've always been doing and thinking through how do we, uh, how do we build institutions that are inclusive, that are responsive to the needs, again, of the community, especially public institutions that are state funded, this idea that we're here to be a, a accessible and sometimes of service or in some ways engaged with our, our community. And our community is requiring more than just a, an undergraduate degree for 18 to 22 year olds. And so that is, it's not for every institution that we, I work for. It's certainly um, something that not all have to go down that path, but there are some who are hungry for entrepreneurial programming for uh, thinking a little bit outside the box here. And they're being driven in some ways by advisory boards or by alumni who, uh, you know, want to come back. And we're hearing that more and more as well, right? So how do we create relationships with alumni for decades to come, not just financial support through donations, but in ways that are contributing to their careers to helping them think through what they do next? Interesting. That's really, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm really struck by something you said a minute or two ago that I'm going to jump back to when you were talking about the various, the types of hires, especially uh, high, high leadership, uh, the president's provost and, and how they were tied, they want to tie the success or they see themselves tying the success of the university to the town or the, the region. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm so struck by that is uh, reading articles about higher ed and the changes of higher ed 
um, you know, Wall Street Journal had an article uh, that was titled, I think it was in November 2020, and it was titled, This Degree is Brought to You by Amazon.com. Mm. And, and that there's this huge push for essentially the raw material of a degree. Just give me the content, give me my degree, make it cheap, make it online, and, I, and I'm good. And while I'm sure, I'm very confident there is a place for that, I think that there is mm. definitely a, a market to be served there. And, you know, nevertheless, you have uh, what almost an increasingly engagement with the university to the community, which really speaks to that the university's role isn't a degree machine. It's not a just manufacturing diplomas for a price, but really there is a, a, a much greater role for universities and colleges in society and specifically now, and sort of the way you couched it was just in their community. Do you have thoughts on that? I I just kind of went went on there. Mm-hmm. I think there will be different roles for different types of institutions going forward, and I think there are some who will really benefit by engaging directly with what their community, the surrounding community, needs from them. I think that the big issues of today, the things the world is grappling with, the pandemic, the um, the unrest we saw this summer, these are the issues that universities are talking about, that research that faculty members are doing, are, you know, this is what you all are tackling. And so I think there's a lot of work that, again, the presidents and, and those that are external facing can be doing to really show uh, this is what we contribute, not just to our surrounding community, but to the world, right? The, the issues that you all are talking about around your kitchen table, we are trying to solve or provide um, information for. And that's also what I think about when I think about the work of presidents, not just in, not just in the you know, fundraising realm, but in the advocating for the importance of higher ed going forward, right? We know that in some places, there's a little bit of an attack on the importance of liberal arts, the importance of, you know, for your degree even. And part of what um, we think we have to do and, and try to find leaders who can do is really not show the value in um, necessarily in monetary terms, but in sort of intellectual value, the, what we're all, what higher ed is contributing to the, again, the foundation of this country. Mm -hmm. That that, the education is not just learning a skill, for Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's not an apprenticeship in the sense of, um, you know, you just got the skill and now you're good and you move on. It's really something you become something greater than you were. Is mm-hmm. that is that a fair way to couch it? Yes, and and we know that the jobs of tomorrow of 20 years from now may not exist right now and how do we teach young people um how to think, how to write, how to pivot and solve problems if the job that they started at when they were 22 doesn't exist when they're 35, 40. And also, uh, how often now do people stay in the same job forever, right? So there's a lot that um, that I think can be sort of covered in, in, in um, learning and in learning to think and to ask questions and to, you know, be a critical and contributing member of your community. That's really neat. And, um, one uh, another guest I've had who is who's becoming a, a thought leader in as an undergraduate student, mm-hmm. and I was very curious for her thoughts. Uh, and she was actually in the Wall Street Journal, um, and I was interested in her thoughts because a lot of again the the news on the surface, if you read it, is really 
downplays that side of the, the academic world that, that what we're providing are these people who can really think and it's not just about a degree and there is value in this education. And, and I was very keen on getting her opinion as that age group, you know, is that something they value? And she was very adamant. Yes. Yes. This is really important. Um, and, and to just go that way and, and the, and the sort of the chatter of the news, if you will, was, is essentially throwing the baby out the bathwater uh, because again, there are places for that, but you know, and but to try to solve the problems of higher ed and the enrollment crisis and high tuition, just by getting rid of it and and then introducing, you know, one hundred percent online skills courses really doesn't solve that problem ultimately, right? That's right, and it takes away, I think, the incredibly important work that faculty members uh, are doing that isn't teaching in the classroom, right? And and is uh, so integral to the success of our country or to solving the big issues of our day. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree with that. Um, so I want to pivot back to something you were talking about because you, you had uh, alluded a minute ago to uh, the events of last summer and a lot of the unrest. And of course, well, while we're on lockdown, I think it was May 25th, um, mm-hmm. a man in Minneapolis, George Floyd, was murdered. And that led to a series of events and uh, something I would call, at least in the worlds I've interacted with, more of a calling, meaning that uh, a lot of work in diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice and working to to really uh, provide an open and inclusive and specifically anti-racist environment for students. So a lot of these activities are occurring, but with that specific event uh, really showed that maybe we should take another look at it and and see what more we can do and it, so it was a real challenge and again calling to to be reflective as a faculty with students included in the conversation and to, to move some of these forward so ha- has that or and how has that affected some of the searches you've seen and, and how universities are articulating their agendas and how they want to move forward a lot of the higher education landscape has moved from talking about building inclusive communities to building anti-racist communities. We're seeing that language. We're seeing, I'm seeing folks and campuses and communities really thinking through what that means, how to resource it, how to talk about it. Back to one of the reasons why I think that higher ed and residential communities are so incredibly important in the long run is that people learn how to live and talk to and be in community with people who are not just like them. That's one of the best things about a college experience for young people. And it's particularly unfortunate that this incredible moment in the country countries reckoning with uh, systemic racism and and some of these issues happened at a time where students couldn't gather in the same way they might have. And, uh, but I've been really happy. I have been really happy to see universities, faculty groups, um, staff and students really talking about what this means systemically, right? What it means to actually, um, talk about this and build communities that are anti-racist, not just inclusive. And it's certainly um, something that most all of folks are talking about and including in the ways in which they are assessing candidates and thinking through um, the competencies and skills they bring to leadership and all levels of leadership. All right, so let's let's bring some of these ideas together. You've talked a lot about how you know a lot of these uh, things you're seeing happen in the academic world and how what they're articulating has changed over time in, in response to some of these challenges, enrollment trends, which is huge. And and I'm glad you mentioned that that universities say that because you again, a lot of these articles they they act like universities are completely oblivious to it. And it's <laughs> I keep telling people, no, trust me. Higher ed is acutely aware of these challenges, and and of course the and not not uh, or along with that the issues of tuition and the cost the cost of college, 
not necessarily mm-hmm. the cost of delivering education, but the actual cost of college, the tuition that's paid. Uh, and I, I think there's a topic for another episode is, is dissecting why college is expensive and education may not be quite as mm-hmm. expensive as the actual college experience, but that's for another conversation. But looking at uh, those trends that you're seeing and the changes in articulation and really the bigger pictures, what can we garner? So let me, let me try to couch it this way. And if this, if this falls flat, I, I, we can go another direction, but uh, maybe if you just had a crystal ball and, and, or, or, you know, we're reflecting on, on your observations in the, in the totality of those by sector, if you said, okay, I think large publics are kind of mm. headed down this road. I think, you know, uh, urban private is headed down this road, a rural private's headed down this road, a community college is headed down this road. If you could piece that together in, in one possible future, there's not one I'm going to hold you to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, as futurists would say, one, th- one method of their work is to envision possible futures, not mm-hmm. the future. They don't know the future. They know they can, they, they think about model, if you will, possible future. So think about what, you know, in your wisdom and in your experience, what those might look like for those different types of institutions. So I'm not sure that I feel like I can be too specific there. I think what I can say is that my experience is that higher ed institutions of all sorts know that they are expensive. They know that the demographics are changing. They know that the students they're serving are different than the students they serve. 20 years ago, and no one is blind to that. I think some of the wonderful things about higher education, the um, shared governance, the incredible commitment to building consensus in many ways, I think some of those slow down some of the changes that need to happen. There are certainly institutions that are more entrepreneurial. They can create new programs faster. They're more often private because they don't have layers in the state to go through to be sure that their program isn't going to compete with another program. You know, there are certainly ways in which private institutions, especially, you know, if they have larger endowments, they can turn faster. Um, but some of those places are also just as deeply committed to shared governance and, um, you know, don't, don't move quite as quickly or have extra le- levels of committees. Um, I think for our large publics, they're doubling down, especially the land-grant institutions, on the access mission, on the mission to serving the students and folks of their state, right? There's definitely that commitment. Um, and then I think across the board, there's this understanding that if we are recruiting students who are from diverse backgrounds, whether it be race, ethnicity, gender, or um, income status, uh, that we have to serve them better. And so that's also something that we're seeing some institutions do really well and some are catching up. But I, I have yet to talk to anyone who doesn't know that these trends aren't part of their life. It's just a matter of how we, how we respond to them. Or let's, let's take a particular or, or a narrower example and try to project from there. So say, you know, enrollment which is, I think, just in the last couple of years have dropped another 10%. Um, the birth dearth of the, the birth rates dropping about 15% in 2008 alone and never recovered, which will hit us in about 2026. And then increasingly so as those freshmen become sophomores, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it strikes me there is a sort of reckoning, if you will, podcast name, um, in higher ed coming to deal with this enrollment trend, and, and it seems that COVID has accelerated at least some of the, the response with people potentially taking gap years and such to, to, and going to college after this whole experience. And the reality is, to put it in business terms, we have an oversupply, right? There are more seats than there are students. And that doesn't really work in higher ed because the whole model is we need a certain enrollment to be viable. Um, you think there'll be a culling of the herd? You think... Uh, the, it will be, or just universities will be downsizing and, and restructuring accordingly. Will be programmatic uh, adjustments, meaning deletion of programs and uh, that are less in demand. You know, wh- how do you think that might play out? And again, this is just a prognostication. Nothing 
you know, just based on your observations. Yeah, and it's totally Natalie uh, thinking thoroughly. 100%. Um, but I, I do think that there will be mergers. Uh, we've seen some, some more successful than others. I think that institutions, that there will be some that don't survive in the next um, couple of years. And I think that there will be places that become more niche serving. So thinking through places where uh, they, it ends up through program deletion or other things that they become more known for one area and don't chase being excellent in all areas. And I, I think that's probably started in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. An interesting example of a strategy, and, and it not so much niche, but uh, we'll call it profit-driven. I think it was the University of Washington who has had the one of the top speech-language pathology and audiology programs in the country. I mean, historically, it's been true for decades and decades. And the reality is audiology programs tend not to be profitable because they're small. It's a smaller field. And the number of faculty it takes to teach, um, it tends not to be profitable enough for most universities to consider them profitable. They do make more than they cost. Whereas speech language pathology programs, because they tend to be much larger, it's a much larger field, tends to be very viable for the university. And and usually most look at those since they're so the, the professions are so intertwined um, from a fiscal point of view that it, it sort of balances out. But University of Washington, even with this really prestigious program, just pulled the plug a few years ago on the audio. I think it was 2018 uh, spring during admissions, just said, nope, we're shutting it down. The whole program, even though it was one of the best in the country, which was a very powerful statement. I mean, it really shook, especially in the, the, the fields of communication disorders, um, because it was such a bold move when they have such a prestigious program that everyone wants to be. And they would just shut it down for fiscal reasons. And what happened to the faculty and staff? And I mean, did they see through the cohort, the student cohort that was in place? And what happened to the presumably tenure track faculty that were there? My understanding, and I'm going off memory here, um, is that they will start with the people who had applied. People had applied, already paid. They were being reviewed. Uh, they were all given basically a note saying uh, when the mission cycle has been shut down and they were refunded their application fee. The uh, cohorts that were already in place were allowed to finish out. And as they finished out, they, the faculty, all the audiology faculty, I, I assume they kept one or so for the speech language pathology program. So there is audiology content, the undergraduate program and whatnot. Um, they all left because that their jobs were ending. And I believe, and uh, again, I'm not 100% on this, but yes, the tenure track, when, they, when, the, when the university shuts a program down, that's often, and it, there is not completely black and white, but often sufficient reason uh, for, to end a, t- a tenure track line. Wow. Well, the good news from my side, uh, from my opinion on that story, is that I don't hear things like that specific story that often. Um, so that it, it might be because of the clients I work with or the candidates I'm talking to, but that feels like less of a common story in the past few years, at least. And, you know, I think I am confident and optimistic. And I think that, I mean, I do the work I do because I think strong leadership can make a difference and that there is an incredible case to be made for the work of these institutions. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm confident that there's a future and, um, I mean, not just the future, but that there's so much that higher ed contributes to this country. And, and I'm a sort of stand on my soapbox constantly and talk about how important and transformational yeah. it is. And and I and I want to be clear. I absolutely agree. And and what I think I'm pointing to in that story, which was a very stark story, um, is that there there will be pains, transitional pains, as this happens. Because what we had, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to pull together some of our streams of consciousness today, is that what we had historically in this country 
are, are very traditional universities. Now, granted, you know, the slightly different experiences, but, you know, you go to a, a rural, private, or a large public, it's, you know, by and large, the same, same thing. You go, you stay in a dorm, you go to classes, you have your papers, and sure, okay, maybe your classes were bigger, and you're especially your freshman, sophomore year at a large public, but it was the same experience, that that the, the college experience was very uniform across all the sectors. Now... Mm-hmm. And what I think is coming out of our discussion is that it's that is the piece that's going to go away. Not that you won't have that experience, but that will be just one of many experiences that you'll have uh, this huge range of educational opportunities. You know, you'll have your fully online. That will be done very, very well. The best practices for online programming have come so far in the last 20, 25 years. You'll have yeah. these these uh, sort of absorb not uh, when I uh, this is I'm trying to differentiate this from online. It may be delivered online, but this idea that you can get your sort of piece your degree over multiple experiences. This idea of I, I prefer to think of it as micro credentialing over. No, I'm sorry, I mean stacking certificates and such because micro credentialing I think in my my personal view has not been uh, developed. It, it sort of it sort of smacks mm. of the whole MOOC thing uh, where. No one's really mm-hmm. talking about how you manage it, but that could happen. And if it, if it does develop that way, that could be a piece as well. And of course, you know, you have your uh, traditional college experience. So you have all these different things that, that will be available. And it's a matter how we get this massive, uh, the, the greater institutions, uh, institution, meaning all of the universities and colleges, because we all can't do all of it. We're all going to have to find our place. And I think that was what profound insight you had was that, you know, a lot of these places will find their niche. They're going to excel at this. They're going to excel at that. Um, and I think I think that's the greater theme. Do you agree with that? Am I, am I capturing that accurately? I think that's right. It's not, it, it's not all going to be the same, but I, I also think there's a lot of opportunity Um to do this, to do, to serve students well and to continue to be really influential and sort of brilliant intellectual communities just in different sort of ways. Uh, and I hadn't thought of it that way, Jeff, about, you know, depending the picture you painted of students at very different institutions, but having the same type of experience, that's right. And I, I don't think that's going to be true as much in the future. Yeah, and that transition will be, and that's sort of, honestly, what's motivating this podcast is, what's yeah. that transition? How do we get from here to there? Because here is so specific, you know, and, and and there is, we're not sure what it is, but we know it's going to be a lot of different things. We just don't know who's going to do what and how we're going to get there. I think that's right. And that's why we think there's room for bold leadership. That's why I think there's room for leadership here. And in a shared governance structure and with faculty members who have these ideas as well. I mean, this is not like one person solving issues. We say, I say that to committees all the time. Like one person can't fix everything. It's a team effort. And, but it is one person who can set the pace and the tone for a division or an institution to be um, responding to these challenges. Having a long career in the recruitment side, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't ask about current faculty who might be interested in administrative roles. It does often happen where you see um, academic leadership sort of transcend from uh, the faculty. So chairs and deans and provosts and presidents typically served as faculty. Um, what advice would you have for current faculty who might be considering moving into an administrative type role and, and what things they need to think about as, as they make that consideration? We often are seeing as folks move from a faculty role to a more administrative role and thinking through how to make the case. You know, there are a few simple things I see as really effective with search committees. One of them is a cover letter that is specific to this position and this institution. It shouldn't be find and replace the institution's name um, in the first and last paragraph. And, you know, that may sound funny, but it, it happens quite a bit. 
And the other thing we're seeing more and more of is as you switch from the academic CV to an administrative one, you want to be really clear about the responsibilities of your um, of your role and the dates and all of that, but also to highlight a few accomplishments. It can kind of sing to a search committee in a way that just the academic CV where you are talking about your role and the timing in it, uh, it just doesn't do quite as much to, to frame how much you've accomplished and how well prepared you are for the position. Oh, that's really good advice. And, um, and the need, I think, for strong administrators has never been stronger. Um, and so I think that advice could be useful to any faculty member looking to, whether it's dip their toe in the water or, or sort of a career change in the same setting from faculty line to, to this administrative trying to solve these bigger problems. So with that, I want to thank you, Natalie. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I, it, this has been hugely interesting and your insights, again, being able to coalesce from a range of universities and colleges to sort of divine, you know, a, a, a unique perspective. So I very much appreciate it. Well, thank you. It was uh, terrific to talk with someone who thought so much about the academy at higher ed. And um, as a non-faculty member who works very much in this setting, it's always great to, uh, to be a part of these conversations and to think through the future of higher ed. Cool. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Reckoning Higher Ed. I hope you found this insightful and that Natalie's uh, variety of experiences was able to broaden uh, some of your views on higher ed and, and some of the thoughts within higher ed. With that, please, if you like this, please uh, click like and your preferred venue of listening to podcasts as well as subscribe. And if you would, uh, still being an early podcast, getting off the ground and building our listenership, if you will, uh, I ask you to share this. Share this with groups of educators or people who just might have an interest in higher education. Um, friends who have an interest, whether they're academics or just generally have an interest, uh, and help promote this, and, and that is very much appreciated. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.